Good morning, everybody. Thank you very much for joining us. We're going to have a, a session now about government policy, and I'm delighted to introduce Nicola Turner, who's agreed to chair this session for us. So over to Nicola. Thank you, Bridget. <laughs> My name is Nicola Turner. I'm the head of sector practice at the Office for Students. And um, as soon as I tell people what my job title is, most people say, head of what? Um, so what my role is, is to identify the most effective practice in the higher education sector across access and participation, across equalities, diversity and inclusion, skills and employability, and also the industrial strategy. And I'm delighted to bring you a panel today which reflects all of those topics. So I think while government, parliament and our MPs sweat over Brexit today, um, and this is actually absorbing quite a lot of attention and resources of our MPs, civil servants and media, I am delighted to have brought these people out of that media circus to talk to you about some of the current and emerging government policy around digital skills agenda. We have... Professor Andy Westwood. Uh, Andy has a variety of job titles which uh, do him justice. He's Vice Dean for Social Responsibility and Professor of Government Practice at the University of Manchester. We also have Dr. Brooke Storer Church. She is the Skills and Employability Manager at the OFS. We have Stephen Rogers, who is the STEM and Digital Skills Unit person at the DFE. And Tim Cook, I was just hesitating there, didn't want to give you Tim Apple, team leader at the Office for Artificial Intelligence, which is uh, jointly looked after by uh, DCMS, the Department for Culture, Media and Sport, and also Bayes. Um, I had the great pleasure uh, in 2016 of co-producing the Shadbolt Review uh, with the Department for Business, Industry and Skills. And... Um, during that time, it feels like a, a, a heady time when we had uh, no Brexit on the horizon. Um, this was to explore employability in computer science. And the review and its recommendations were actually one of the cornerstones of our funding rationale for the £20 million that went into the Institute of Coding. And in paraphrasing what Sir Nigel Shadbolt recommended in that review, you will see a number of the themes that have become IOC themes were things he was particularly interested in making progress on. He said that diversity was poor, not just in higher education courses, but also in the workforce at a highly skilled level. He said work experience take-up was too low, and he was very concerned with how we keep our curriculum in pace with the changing needs of technology. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Andy Westwood to give us 10 minutes on his view of the landscape, the policy landscape at the moment. Thank you. Nice. And do you want me to get, I get there? Yeah. <coughs> I might move around in a sort of random way because that's what I do. Um, so, uh, well, thank you. Uh, thank you for kind of inviting me to, to come and talk. Um, I, uh, I've, as you heard from the introduction, I've just, just literally come from kind of 200 yards away, which is one of the reasons I'm so wet 
but uh, I'm used to it working in Manchester. But let me um, let me start with a kind of a a, a kind of confession, really. Um, most of my uh, career and most of my experience isn't in, in, in the University of Manchester or in academia, it's in, it's in government. And uh, I've worked in different departments in Whitehall, in, in the Treasury, in DfE, in uh, uh, Biz, Bays, or its various forerunners. So I've, I've commissioned and worked on quite a lot of government reviews, most of which have failed, I have to say. Uh, or, or being kind of uh, taken over by something else at some point. Uh, so so, so par par partly my comments will be uh, informed by that experience rather than some kind of academic e evaluation. So um, uh, let, let me start with a, with a kind of an observation about the Institute of Coding, uh, which, which I think is a fascinating uh, um, intervention in policy at this time. Uh, it's, it's, it's fantastic to see a kind of a collaboration of lots of different organisations, particularly on the teaching and learning side. This is something that is much more common, much more frequent, uh, and people are much more used to working on, on the kind of research side of, uh, of higher education and industrial strategy. Uh, but there's much less of it in, uh, in, in the kind of new structures that the Office for Students and the landscape very much kind of shaped by Joe Johnson's reforms uh, a couple of years back have given us. So, so it's, it's really important to sort of say, you know, I think that's really important. And clearly, you know, from digitalization to automation, uh, the, 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 the range of things that the Institute has to tackle are, are significant and uh, important uh, to come together to try and do. Um, a couple of years back, I worked on a, a House of Lords Digital Skills Committee and, uh, and we had the then skills minister, I've been about seven since, uh, but the then skills minister Nick Bowles came and described what, what he saw as the everythingness of digital. Uh, and that it, you know, it reached into kind of every bit of the workforce, every bit of the economy, and needed to reach into every bit of the kind of education and research system, but didn't do so at that time. So, you know, your job is to uh, try and remedy that. Um, there, there, there's a, a, a but uh, to all of this, uh, which is that it's, it's going to be very hard to achieve that, in, not just in the face of the kind of uh, uh, massive policy churn that we sit in and the massive kind of economic and technological churn that we sit in. It's very hard because I think, I think the kind of um, the, the regime, the policy regime, the network, the landscape that we sit in for higher education, particularly on, on the kind of Office for Students side, is, is about competition rather than collaboration. It's about regulating a market rather than intervening in it and uh, creating and managing um, uh, the processes and outputs of interventions like the Institute for Coding. Um, it's, uh, as I've already mentioned, that's kind of not the case on the, on, the, on the research side. And I know that this is an initiative that is at least partly badged by the industrial strategy, but it's quite a rare example, even in the context of industrial strategy, uh, an initiative, an institute of this kind. Most, most of the industrial strategy money is going on sector deals or essentially on applied uh, research and development. So, you know, there, there is a sense that kind of in all of the things that you're having to deal with, you're also swimming a little bit against the stream of policy. Uh, and that doesn't make it uh, any easier. I think um, uh, I, I, I write quite a lot about some tensions between, 
UKRI and OFS in how they see the world. Uh, but that kind of uh, uh, runs up to the Department of uh, uh, Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy and the Department for Education. The join up there, I think, could be, uh, could be stronger in order to help you uh, in what you're doing. Um, I, um, I need to talk a bit about the Augur review. Um, we're waiting for, you know, we're waiting for it to hit. It, it, it's written, I think, more or less. It knows what it's going to say. Uh, most of us here that are working in universities will probably be, be obsessing about what it's going to do about the fee. Uh, uh, those in the OFS might be obsessing about whether it returns them to being uh, uh, something like a Hefke rather than uh, the, the regulator that the OFS has, uh, uh, the regulatory model that the OFS has adopted. Um, but but the, 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 both the DfE and, and I think really importantly Treasury's response to Augur are still uh, are still to come, and as we can see in politics, they have their uh, attention uh, focused in in, uh, in 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 a great many other directions at the moment. Um, what, whatever we know about uh, Theresa May, she commissioned the Augur review. She will receive the Augur review, I think, uh, but we know for sure she's not going to be around to implement it. Uh, somebody else will pick up the basket of proposals that Augur offers and deliver it. And uh, reading the Sunday Times this weekend, uh, they're currently working with a list of 19 possible uh, Conservative Prime Ministers. Uh, so, so there's quite a lot of variables on how they might see industrial strategy, how they might see higher education, pricing of higher education, the regulation of higher education, uh, and quite a lot of variables about how those things might or might not fit together. Um, but I think, I think there is something really important uh, uh, for this conversation about Augur, and that, that isn't about the fee. It's about the kind of wider tertiary system. It's about kind of uh, uh, creating a system that hasn't really existed for, for many years, arguably never, uh, and, and a, a kind of an attention on what you might call the upper technical space, that level four, level five, including apprenticeships that Nicola knows a lot about, work-based learning as, as part of a system that's essentially been dominated by the full-time higher education uh, honours degree sort of experience. So, you know, I, I'm guessing that kind of most of us here know that we're not going to solve all of the issues we need in the digital world with full-time honours degrees. Uh, so there is, there is, a, there is a, a really important thing that Orga will deliver us on, on that issue. Um, and I think kind of whether or when Augur delivers and whoever uh, has to implement it and whatever kind of comes from all of that. Um, there, is a, there is a reset, I think, coming between the kind of very academic in both research and teaching and learning terms to a much more kind of applied technical focus. Uh, it's often said that in England and, and the UK, but mainly England, that we're a real obvious outlier in the EU, in the OECD, uh, by having a system that is so kind of dominated by the academic three-year, but also the kind of academic research uh, um, culture, when actually most other systems that are more productive than us in economic terms have a much more varied kind of tertiary approach. So whether Orga does it, whether May does it, whether Johnson does it, whether Raab does it, whether, and I could go on, uh, um, there is, I think, a reset of both our higher education system in terms of what we teach and who teaches it, uh, as well as a research system 
and how we shift much more to an applied focus, which, which uh, uh, I'm sure Tim will tell us the, uh, the industrial strategy is absolutely there to do and has some serious resource to back it. So I think, I think one thing I'll be looking out for uh, over the next few years is not, is not just how all of that lands, but how at a very kind of macro level, uh, industrial strategy really feeds into uh, um, a much broader tertiary system that we don't currently have. Uh, and in this context, we absolutely need to have. So I should stop there and allow others to give their opinion. All right. Rook. Rook Story Church. Rook. <laughs> Coming with accoutrements. There we are. Sorry, everybody. I'm going to bring this water over because I've got a bit of a cold. So <clears throat> apologies in advance. I'm usually much more excitable when I give presentations. I'll be a bit subdued. Um, thanks for having me. I think it's been really interesting to be here yesterday and to hear everybody's thoughts and ideas and activities that they're already engaging in through the IOC. As Nicola mentioned, we did um, kind of see and witness the birth of the Institute um, through a lot of hard work with Bath and its partner organizations, and that continues to grow, and it's really fun to see all of your efforts being put into that and the, and the outcomes, hopefully, that we'll continue to see. Um, I thought it would be helpful, probably, and most valuable uh, for me to come and just give that kind of overview of where we are at the moment with government policies on productivity and social mobility, uh, what particular initiatives are are being instituted by the government to address the digital skills gap specifically, and then how that all fits into OFS's evolving priorities and the strategic priorities that we've published in our first year of operation. Um, so starting then in 2015 with the productivity plan, the current government uh, industrial strategy and initiatives stemming from both of those, we see very clearly that the government has a set of priorities around improving productivity and, mo and social mobility more broadly. Um, the major challenge for productivity identified currently is the supply of the right skills in the right places. I think we've seen and heard from a number of speakers that have that have discuss that issue um, specifically. This issue, from our view, traverses schools and further education and higher education and the workplace, so it's not for one area to solve, but requires deeper partnerships and a bit of the out-of-the-box thinking. Um, I certainly listened to a talk yesterday about how to match software developers with demand for software developers, and that raised a number of the issues that we are familiar with, but again, no, no real simple solution here. Um, one then issue around this is around subject-specific skills, so how, how do we get more graduates with STEM skills specifically to address what we know are protracted skills vacancies. Another issue we know that exists is how, um, how graduates and those undertaking uh, other higher education programs are developing soft skills like communication and teamworking and problem solving. And one that I think is, is particularly important is resilience. And I think Sue, Sue Black's talk yesterday really spoke to the need to kind of pick yourself up and keep going and keep going and keep going. Um, I think that probably resonates with a lot of people. Um, but it isn't also about, or it isn't just about developing those right skills in the right places. Um, it's also an issue of geography. So we know that demand for some skills are concentrated in a place where people aren't really coming out with those skills. And we also know at the same time that a large proportion of graduates will seek to remain in their local areas, um, even though there might not be jobs for their particular subject area that they've chosen to study. Uh, we've taken notice of that 
government's taken notice of that. So we've recently published a call for proposals from institutions to help address this issue of local graduates. We also know that government initiatives uh, with a place-based spin or also the opportunity areas initiatives are all trying to look at where those regional variations can be addressed. Uh, we heard from Jacqueline last night at dinner and others during yesterday's talks around the challenges associated with the fourth industrial revolution um, that we are all well aware of, I think, are bringing increased robotics and automation, uh, prevalence of digital technologies and the internet of things, as it's been called. Um, we know that automation and digitalization is expected to replace a variety of low and medium skilled jobs and at the same time it will increase demand for higher level knowledge and skills at these, as these changes lead to increased complexity and accelerated paces of change which themselves will demand more flexible partnerships, quicker responses, new modes of delivery, lifelong learning and consistent reskilling. So I think what, what Jacqueline had said about the every, every 10 years to avoid obsolete um, condition will probably become you know, even more so if predictions hold. So according to a recent UUK report, 440,000 new professional level jobs were created in 2016, though there were only about 317,000 graduates, uh, first degree UK based graduates eligible to apply for those. This leaves a recruitment gap, a gap about 123,000, uh, which is actually more than double the gap in 2015. So demand linking, uh, sorry, demand linked then to replacing workers uh, who are retiring will only add additional pressures to that gap. Uh, we see demand in the labor market activities and surveys now. Uh, the most recent employer skills survey in 2017 notes that recruitment activity within the UK has continued to grow since 2015, with 20% of employers holding vacancies and a total of over 1 million vacancies at the time of the survey, which is a 9% increase from 2015. And the survey captured the types of skills of empl uh, employers are looking for and those they can't find. So those found to be lacking among applicants ranged from both technical and practical skills to uh, what were called people and personal skills. On the technical side, employers were reporting a lack of digital skills, uh, skills related to operational aspects of the role, and a lack of complex analytical skills. Uh, references to people or personal skills were mainly concerned with uh, deficiencies in, in time management, in leadership capabilities, or in customer handling skills, which I generally think of as broad interpersonal skills. Um, importantly, around 63% of the surveyed employers anticipated that their skills requirements will change over the next 12 months. So again, very hard to predict. It adds another layer of complication, and it certainly does reinforce the fact that the, the pace of change is ever quickening. So turning now then to, to government and what, what is being developed to try to address these skills, vacancies, and in particular digital skills issues, um, as, as Andy mentioned in his discussions around the industrial strategy, the industrial strategy highlights the technical education is an underused and undervalued part of our skill system. So perhaps the missing link to greater productivity, which needs to be bolstered in order to address these protracted skills gaps. Uh, to that end, we should see this year the formal launch of the Institutes of Technology by the Department for Education, now that successful bidders have progressed through the second stage of the process and negotiations for licensing agreements are underway. Uh, we'll also see the development of T-levels with the first launch next year. 
Uh, a main feature of the government's productivity plan were reforms to the apprenticeship system, which we've discussed at length, I think, here yesterday. Uh, that introduced the levy, the IFA, and degree apprenticeships. We now have over 100 higher education institutions on the ESFA's register to deliver apprenticeships. And we know that the digital and technology solutions degree apprenticeship is the second most popular degree apprenticeship being offered currently. We also now have higher education representation on the board at the Institute for Apprenticeships and Technical Education, as it's now known. Um, and we heard from Malcolm yesterday in the panel on the degree apprenticeships. There are other specific efforts which my colleagues will discuss more, <laughs> more at length, so I won't take up too much of their time. And of course, we're here at the first annual IOC conference. It's in itself, as, as Nick mentioned, an institute funded by 20 million pounds from the government in order to address what has been well identified through Shadbolt and other initiatives as a massive need to drive up higher level skills developments through a variety of mechanisms and further diversification and flexible uh, provision. And I think that we've, we've already begun to glean a lot of the, the valuable learning that the IOC is helping to provide in that front. So despite these then and other targeted interventions over several years, we do know that some STEM skills remain acute for businesses to recruit, or an acute challenge, pardon me. Um, the Wakeham and Shadbolt reviews commissioned by the government to examine graduate employability in STEM subjects and published in 2016 highlighted how those graduates and disciplines associated with the fastest rate of technological change face the greatest obstacles employment, uh, to employment. So in many ways, those reviews refreshed our debates on work experience and how to engage with SMEs and how to improve data on outcomes in, in particular. They do present substantive evidence to underpin the challenges of trying to instill graduates with the skills and attributes necessary to be effective in today's workplace. Um, and, and we are currently, as we have been for the past couple of years, trying to tease out the many ways in which we can build on those recommendations. Um, we know that those reports show the strong correlation between work experience and positive graduate outcomes, um, for sandwich places in particular. We don't know whether uh, informal or shorter work experiences might also benefit and have a direct relationship to improved graduate outcomes, but that is something that we're interested in looking at going forward. Um, it's certainly of interest to the OFS, how improved data capture and more flexible and variable provision, including those less formal or shorter work experience opportunities, can improve graduate outcomes. And, and as I said, we will look to, to take that forward. So what is OFS's interest in this space and how will we work to support uh, improvements in digital skills, skills gaps, and graduate employability going forward? Uh, issues like graduate employability align closely with OFS's ambitions and strategic objectives. In terms of access and participation, our ambition is that the future generations should have equal opportunities to access and succeed in higher education and to achieve successful and rewarding careers. We have set four strategic objectives, and the third of which is that we aim to ensure that all students from all backgrounds are able to progress into employment, further study, and fulfilling lives, and that their qualifications hold their value over time. So not short of ambition there in that one. Um, to meet our ambition, we have set out a few uh, fairly ambitious targets for the sector, which most universities are familiar with, but those are only the, the, what I view as the kind of the first four. So I like to think of this list as not exhaustive and uh, would like to see it broaden out to incorporate issues like employment outcomes once we start to see shifting dials on attainment. Um, we know from the Shadbolt Review that there are disparities in employment outcomes across computer science programs in particular. 
Initiatives like the Institute of Coding will go some way to address those through its explicit focus on widening participation, which is reflected in its governance by the Diversity and Inclusion Advisory Board, and the sensitivity of its partner organizations to issues related to improving access into and success in digital professions. We also see this in the launch of boot camps and other efforts to ensure graduates are best prepared for their steps into employment. We also know that improvements must reflect the diversity of learners and colleagues within the digital industries and those professions that are digitizing. And that includes those already in employment or looking to gain further knowledge after years of being away from formal education. We see efforts to do just that in the IOCs developing different types of provision to meet a variety of needs. Taster events, digital skills training camps, online courses, and short courses to improve specialist skills. By embracing those innovative approaches to designing course content and delivery, initiatives like these can absolutely respond to the ambitions we've set. There is a need, though, to closely monitor the effectiveness of any intervention or program designed, that it's, it's necessary not only to determine whether it's been successful in delivering its intended outcomes, but also to assess where further improvements can be made and to, to test whether those interventions can be scaled up or used in different settings in order to test the resilience and robustness of those very interventions. Crucially, we'll seek to identify the learners which are accessing and benefiting these new types of provision and those that aren't. From there, we can be curious about the reasons that some may not be accessing or benefiting in order to inform future work to address those disparities and to support more expansive success for all those who might engage in higher education to, uh, to improve their life chances. Um, thank you for your time. And I'll hand over to Stephen. Thanks, Brooke. Thank you. And now, Stephen Rogers for the Department for Education. <clears throat> Right. Uh, well, thank you very much uh, for having me here. I'm uh, very pleased to be invited. I'd like, first of all, just to pass on um, the apologies from the university's minister, Chris Skidmore, who I'm sure he would have loved to have come to the conference here this week, but uh, uh, ministers aren't really allowed to stray very far from Westminster this week for uh, obvious reasons. Um, so I'd like to talk about three things today, which I think will... Uh, sort of reiterate some of the points that have already been made. Um, so I'd like to talk generally about digital skills and the importance of digital skills to government and, and obviously the wider country. Um, I'd like to talk then a bit more detail about uh, the work that the Department for Education is doing throughout the educational pipeline really to support the development of digital skills. Um, and then talk about uh, sort of computer science and university education in particular uh, more specifically. And then uh, I've got some questions for you um, because I certainly don't have all the answers um, and I'm... Uh, currently engaged in a process of uh, trying to find out as much as I can from the sector about various issues. So, um, to, to start with then, um, the, the digital sector, I think as has already been stated probably many times throughout the conference really, uh, is crucial to the UK economy. So, uh, just, just a few statistics to bring that home really. Um, the DCMS estimates uh, say that um, the, the digital sector contributes more than £130 billion to the UK economy, which accounts for 7% uh, of UK G uh, GVA. Um, and that contribution has grown by a third since 2010. Um, it also contributes enormously to employment, which has also been rising. Um, again, estimates 
put um, the number of jobs in the digital sector at about one and a half million, um, with another 700,000 specialist digital skills across uh, a variety of different sectors in the wider economy, uh, which again accounts for about 7% of total UK employment. So um, really, really important uh, part of the UK economy. Um, and important also for people, there's um, the various estimates for the wage premium uh, that is attracted by, by having great digital skills and working in the digital sector. Uh, but some estimates put it on average of about £10,000 a year um, in, in terms of having these skills. Um, and it's going to continue. Um, skills forecasting uh, and growth forecasting in particular are now notoriously difficult to get right, but there is a general agreement that um, the, the digital sector will continue to grow and grow at a much faster rate than the wider economy. Uh, some estimates put it as, as fast as twice uh, the wider economy, which could see a 12 or 13 uh, percent sort of growth rate by 2025. Um, and, and actually, uh, we compare quite favourably uh, on quite a lot of metrics uh, internationally as well. So um, the the, uh, the, the European Digital Economy and Society Index puts us at uh, number four for um, basic skills and usage and advanced skills and development uh, across the whole of Europe. Um, I mean, if you're interested, the other uh, the three uh, who beat us are uh, Finland, Netherlands and uh, Sweden. Uh, so, so it is a good it is good news. Um, so, digital skills are a really important part of our economy, uh, and they're doing really well. Uh, and that's clearly supported by um, a, a really strong skills base. But in a way, we're a victim of our own success because, um, as has already been pointed out, there are um, sort of wide skill shortages in the economy. Um, the Employer Skills Survey did point out that digital skills are one of the, the the widest areas that contributes to um, skill shortages, um, with anything up to a third of all shortages. Um, um, having something to do with digital skills. Um, and as we know, skill shortages hamper productivity, they slow growth and they deprive people of uh, really valuable opportunities. And of particular importance, of course, in, in the digital sector uh, is the gender imbalance. Um, various estimates for uh, the percentage of women in the, in the workforce uh, range from about 17 to 19%, but it's certainly much lower than a lot of our competitors and, and, and much lower than it should be, uh, where we should really be aiming for a 50-50 split, as, as happens in other countries. Um, so, in acknowledgement then of the importance of digital skills, they're, they're, they're woven into uh, a, a whole range uh, of initiatives from the uh, Department for Education in particular. Uh, so, starting uh, at school, um, we've introduced computing as a, a national curriculum subject at all key stages. Uh, something that's world leading is now being copied by a lot of other countries around the world. Uh, so all the way from primary uh, through secondary school, computing is, is part of the statutory national curriculum. Um, and we've also introduced new GCSEs and A-levels um, to support that growth. Um, now one of the, the issues that's caused, of course, is there's a, a, a lack of teachers to actually teach all these new courses. So um, we've recently announced uh, the formation of the National Centre for Computing Education. Uh, whose primary role, amongst others, is uh, to support the, the training and development of teachers. And they have a very, very ambitious target uh, over five years of training enough teachers to put one fully trained teacher in every secondary school in the country. Um, we're also redesigning technical education, uh, a process that's, uh, that's moving on at pace. Um, we've introduced uh, new apprenticeships, data science, creative digital design, network engineering, cybersecurity, uh, and there are many more coming on stream all the time. Uh, and then the new digital T-levels uh, are are amongst the first uh, to launch in 2020. Um, and again, they, their development um, uh, is, is proceeding well. Uh, we've recently announced uh, the awarding organisations that will be delivering those T-levels. Um, 
so technical education is supported by um, a new college, uh, one of the first new colleges created for a long time, uh, ADA, the, the National College for Digital, uh, which is very well established uh, now. It's been running for a few years. And they're, they're doing some great stuff. And they will be taking on a, a national role for technical education in digital skills um, and really uh, leading the way for the, the rest of the sector. Um, and at HE, uh, we already heard, obviously, a lot of things that are happening. Um, the Institute of Coding, of course, which is the, really the flagship uh, initiative for supporting the, the growth of high-level digital skills, um, the, the formation of the, the OFS and the introduction of the teaching um, and uh, outcomes framework, of course, um, really supporting this idea uh, that university and the, the HE sector should be much more focused on, on skills. Um, and uh, then, um, again, already mentioned, the, the Institutes of Technology that should be coming, um, the first Institutes of Technology we hope to launch um, for the next academic year, so in September this year. Um, and then there will be a lot more coming on stream after that. So very, very exciting initiative and some really, really good, uh, good bids um, coming through for those. Um, the, the Orga Review, uh, already mentioned by Andy, of course, um, or to give it its proper title, the Post-18 Education and Funding Review uh, is proceeding apace. Um, and, and as Andy pointed out, that really could potentially be um, a, a sort of see, a, a really see a, a major change in the sector. Now, um, I don't know what the Orga Review is going to report. I've deliberately not read it. Uh, what's out there, but I, I know that there is still a lot of work going on. Um, so it's not actually it's not actually finished yet. There's still, there's still a lot of work to be done, uh, but it, it is due to report um, later this year. Um, just to remind you, though, of the the, um, the principles of the Orga Review, the uh, the remit in which it was set up. Uh, its aim is uh, to look at the HE sector and ensure that post HE education is accessible for everyone, uh, provides value for money for both students and taxpayers, uh, incentivizes choice and competition, and crucially delivers the skills that we need for the economy. Um, and I think that's where uh, the the review will impact on the work that's going on in your universities. Um, for adults, uh, we're introducing a new um, entitlement for full funding for uh, basic digital skills courses from 2020 to bring them in line with uh, sort of literacy and numeracy courses. Um, and we're also re redesigning the qualifications to support that as well, to support those digital skills at the lower levels. Um, and then we're also introducing the, the National Retraining Scheme, um, which is a huge ambitious project uh, to um, retrain people whose jobs are most likely to be affected by, by automation or technological change. Um, and that's proceeding very well. Um, it's been developed on a, a, a sort of an agile basis, so it's been rolled out slowly, and uh, the sort of private and public betas will be coming out later this year. Um, but in the department, we acknowledge that the formal education system and those sort of big changes are only really uh, one part of the puzzle. Um, and so we're working very closely across Whitehall, probably, I think, more closely than, uh, than we've ever done before um, in terms of supporting skills across the, across the whole of economy. So one of the things that we've done recently is to form a joint virtual unit with DCMS. Uh, and Tim is a proud member of our joint virtual unit. Um, so we work very, very closely across the two departments now on skills. Um, and we're, we're looking to link up on policies, uh, anything new, current policies that are underway, um, and obviously uh, uh, things that we'll be uh, suggesting for the future. Um, so whereas 
in DFE, we tend to um, focus very much on those big structural uh, long-term changes. D DCMS sort of complements those efforts with uh, smaller, more agile uh, fo and more focused interventions, really, to support um, regional skills need and the specific needs of industry. Uh, so Tim will be talking, obviously, about the, uh, the, the Office for AI and the work they're doing. Um, there's also a plethora of, uh, of initiatives from DCMS to support cyber skills, uh, particularly high-level cyber skills, and support that industry. Um, there's uh, the Digital Skills Partnership, uh, which acts as a convening body, really, to bring together all the stakeholders in digital skills, both employers, um, educationalists, uh, and, and, and other interested parties, to really uh, provide a, a, a sort of focused and coherent approach to developing digital skills. Um, and they're also trialling um, other sort of initiatives, such as the, uh, the digital boot camps to um, sort of support reskilling, uh, which have been trialled here in Manchester. Um, so with, with so much going on, um, and looking ahead in particular to the comprehensive spending review um, that should be coming out sometime this year, uh, we're not exactly sure when, uh, we're not exactly sure what scope uh, the spending review will have either. Um, a lot of that, of course, depends on uh, what happens with Brexit. Um, but the spending review will have to, will have to come out this year. Uh, and so within the departments, across all departments really, we're doing a lot of work um, to try and identify what more is needed to support the existing initiatives. Um, and so in particular, uh, I'm looking at a piece of work around um, sort of computer science at university. And that's really where my ask for help comes in. Um, the the Shadball review has been mentioned several times, really. Uh, and so I'm uh, re revisiting the Shadball review, having a look at it again, um, and looking at the findings of the Shadball review and trying to update them a little bit, see um, whether they're still valid, uh, looking at new sources of evidence, and in particular, talking to as many people as I can um, to find out, uh, get a little bit under the data. Um, I think one of the things that came through from the Shadball review, really, was a little bit of a frustration of a lack of really good, solid evidence. And I don't think that's... I don't think uh, we fixed that problem yet, but there are new sources of evidence available now. Um, so I'm, I've been visiting a lot of universities, I've been talking to a lot of universities, and I'm, uh, I'm going to set up some, uh, some round tables to talk to even more. Um, and dare I say, I'm even talking to some students. Um, not something that we do in the department quite a lot, but um, you know, I, I, I do like to be radical, take a radical approach to these things. Um, so... The questions that I'm specifically looking at and the work that I'm focusing on, it, it probably won't be another large-scale structural program. Uh, it would be something probably I, I would expect to, to support the, the efforts of the Institute of Coding and other efforts that are going on and the sort of programs that are being introduced um, by the OFS as well. Um, but the specific questions I'm looking at, very familiar. Uh, I don't there's anything here that would surprise you. Uh, so I'm looking at employability. Um, so is employability in computer science really an issue? Um, so we've seen um, the fact, the, uh, the oft-stated fact that employment outcomes for computer science graduates are uh, the worst uh, of any sector. Uh, and even though they have improved over recent years, that's still true. Uh, but other research shows um, actually that computer science uh, degrees do um, uh, perform a really valuable function in the, um, in the economy. So the, uh, the uh, Institute of Fiscal Studies released some reports um, last year uh, using the LEO data set to, to look at wage returns. Um, and one of the really interesting uh, findings was it uh, was that um, computer science degrees in particular add an enormous amount of value and a lot more value for, uh, than, than other um, 
subjects that you might expect. So more, once you control for all of the factors, uh, more than engineering, more than maths, more than, uh, more than a lot of the other physical sciences as well. And I think that a lot of that is due with the nature of the students that come into computer science, uh, the very diverse nature, and the fact that they're being well served generally uh, by their courses and they're leaving and they're getting well paid jobs. Um, so um, when I look at employability, I, the question that I'm trying to get to the bottom of, is, is employability in computer science really a specific issue? Is it a STEM-wide issue? Uh, or in fact an issue that goes um, beyond uh, STEM into other subjects as well? Um, and then another um, issue really that, that, is, it, that does seem to be prevalent in computer science is around non-continuation. So um, the statistics around non-continuation came out I think just a couple of weeks ago uh, showing that computer science does have the highest rates uh, of non-continuation. 9.8% uh, of students don't continue from, from year one to year two. Um, and the average is 6.3% um, and the next highest is business at 7.3%. So um, significantly higher for computer science. So why is that? Well, what is it uh, about computer science? science course and computer science students, that means that they, they tend to drop out in that way. Or is it really dropping out, or are they going on to do other things? Um, then, uh, in terms of employability, making sure that um, university courses are relevant to the needs of industry, relevant to the local needs of students, of course, really crucial as well. So I'm also looking uh, at what universities do um, to, to actually make sure that their, student, their courses remain relevant, the sort of engagement they have with employers. Um, and then, of course, work experience. I'm looking at um, the kinds of work experience that work. Again, the, the, the sorts of issues that, uh, that Brooke mentioned. Uh, with work experience, we know that sandwich courses work, but we also know that a lot of students simply aren't suited to sandwich courses. Uh, so what other kinds of work experience can be effective, and what can we do to actually promote that and support those with students? Um, and then, of course, the widening participation, um, particularly for women, but other groups as well. Um, and and uh, I'm particularly interested in, uh, in disability and the, the kind of thing that universities do to support students who are disabled. Um, so as I say, I don't have all the answers to that. I've been gathering a lot of data. Um, but my ask for you, I, I don't want to dominate the discussion with these questions today. Uh, I'm sure you've got lots of other questions to ask. But certainly if you think that, that you can help me with any of this, or you know somebody who can, uh, then please do get in touch with me, uh, and I'd be really interested to hear from you and talk more. And that's me. Um, could I ask Tim Cook to take the podium? Absolutely. Thank you very much, Nicola. And I'm trying to live up to Stephen's billing of being uh, small and agile. Um, I can definitely do the small bit anyway. Um, so I'm Tim Cook. I'm from the Office for Artificial Intelligence, which, as mentioned earlier, is a joint unit between um, DCMS and Bayes, taking the best of the kind of digital and tech policy bits of DCMS and the business growth and industrial strategy bits of Bayes. And what I'd really like to do is put into context all of the discussion you've heard before into the context of the industrial strategy um, and show you the lens that some of this is being looked at through, particularly by, uh, by the Treasury as we get towards the, uh, the spending review process. Um, but in doing so, I, um, I also will talk to you a little bit about some of the things we've done in the Office for Artificial Intelligence and also some of the things that we are planning to do. And I want to put all of that into the context of two things which I think are really important to me, one of which is partnerships um, and the other one is place. Um, but before uh, I get too much into it, I'm conscious you've been listening to the, the panel for a while now, so I want to do a little bit of uh, audience interaction. 
Um, there is uh, no stress, no pressure on you. Firstly, um, I'm not going to come to anyone who puts their hand up and ask them to uh, give me an answer. And secondly, there's no shame because I can't see anyone because these lights are so bright up here. Um, but I just want to ask you a couple of questions. Um, the panel have, I think, all mentioned the industrial strategy at some point in, uh, in their discussions. But I'm interested in um, how much people have been able to take on board of the government's industrial strategy. So, so my first one is um, how many people think they would feel confident listing the four grand challenges that the industrial strategy sets out? A small number. Okay, so I will, I will go through, uh, through those four then. So um, the four grand challenges that the government's industrial strategy sets out are clean growth, uh, an ageing society, the future of mobility, and of course, the one that I'm here to talk about, which is uh, artificial intelligence and data. Um, and I think the thing that really excites me uh, is that art artificial intelligence and data, I think, has a really strong role to play in all of the, uh, the grand challenges. And I think the thing that should excite you all is that there is also a huge role for digital and uh, tech much more broadly uh, in each of those grand challenges. They all have a really, really, really strong kind of digital uh, enabler piece to them all. Um, so second question, I anticipate my, uh, the number of hands will be similar, if not less, is how many people reckon they could list the five foundations that the industrial strategy sets out? None at all. Right, okay, so I'll go, I'll go through those really quickly. Um, so the five foundations are um, people, are ideas, which is uh, about the, the kind of uh, innovation side of things, uh, our place, which is about making all of this very local, uh, about the business environment that we create and the infrastructure that we have as a country. And the reason that I ask these questions is as we come towards spending review, as we come to some of the big decisions that hopefully the Chancellor will be starting to talk about in his spring statement uh, uh, later on today, um, this is the lens through which the Treasury uh, and other departments will be looking at some of the big funding decisions. So it is really important to be able to put all the work that we do in the context uh, of the industrial strategy if we are to uh, take forward some of the initiatives that, that we want to take forward. Um, touching then briefly on the artificial intelligence and data, um, the industrial strategy was published uh, about last Christmas, uh, Christmas before last, um, and fairly shortly after that we had a sector deal on uh, AI and data which was published around April, May time last year, and about the same time the Office for Artificial Intelligence was formed. Um, and in the Office for Artificial Intelligence we are structuring our work around uh, four main pillars one of which is data. Um, we ourselves are looking very much at the concept of data trusts and working with the Open Data Institute closely on that. Um, but we are also very closely plugged into the new Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation and uh, into the broader data ethics and data policy teams around DCMS. Um, leadership is another one that's really important to us. We're establishing the uh, AI Council, which will be chaired by Tabitha Goldstab. Uh, and, of course, having a strong international leadership aspect to the work that we do on AI and data as well. Um, 
skills is really, really important, and the skills and the data bits are the bits that I head up. Um, and I'll come on and talk to you a little bit more about the skills piece in particular in a moment. And then finally, the bit that all, each of those three really underpin is adoption. How do we support the uptake of uh, AI and data technologies in, uh, across the economy, recognising the real benefit that they have to that, that other thing that the government take really, really seriously, which is, of course, productivity. Um, on the people side, on the skills piece, uh, we've already made some fairly rapid progress in the Office for Artificial Intelligence uh, and across the broader government community. So um, UKRI uh, have announced a uh, £100 million package funding uh, 16 centres for doctoral training in artificial intelligence across the country. Um, that will see about a thousand new PhDs in AI. Um, but I think what is really important, coming back to that subject of partnerships, is that there is uh, the industry are matching that funding and supporting some of those centres for doctoral training. So as we talk about making those partnerships, something that the IOC is really, really kind of well placed to uh, help support as well. Um, we also launched a um, new AI master's program, an industry-funded AI master's program. We talked about the first set of companies that have uh, put their hand in the air and said they're willing to fund. Um, I'm very grateful to Rashid and colleagues at the IOC for the support they've been giving in trying to uh, support some of the brokering between uh, companies who are keen to fund AI master's places and universities who are saying they have, uh, have places available. Um, so uh, that's you know, that first announcement was the first few companies that are uh, keen to fund. We want to drive more companies towards that and create more of those partnerships between industry and academia and, and really welcome the support that IOC have, have been giving us on that. Um, and then at the right, the real top level, we recognise the need to attract and retain the top talent in the UK. And so with the Alan Turing Institute, we launched a new fellowship scheme um, aimed at, uh, at doing just that. And again, in that, we have uh, the opportunity for a strong industry uh, partnership piece. Um, but there's more to be done. Um, and uh, there's a lot more that we want to do in, from the Office for AI. Um, we, we recognise a lot of our initiatives so far have been on creating the really highly skilled people in AI uh, and that there's more that we could do to uh, look at the skills of the general workforce and indeed uh, of the general public perhaps in raising their awareness and their ability to work with AI systems in the future. Um, cute crucial and underpinning all of this is the concept of diversity. We had a fantastic panel earlier on and we're really keen to look at how all of the initiatives that we bring forward have the opportunity to increase the diversity in this workforce. Um, not least things like conversion courses, so can we bring people in with non-STEM backgrounds into uh, AI and data? I think that has a real opportunity. I gather there was a good discussion yesterday on apprenticeships, which is something that uh, Brooke and Nicola uh, mentioned in particular, and I think there's a real opportunity there to unlock some, uh, some really good partnerships between uh, industry uh, and academia. Um, we're really keen to, under to talk more about how we can get really good ethics modules in some of the masters uh, and undergrad courses that, uh, that there are. I think the, the picture is quite varied across the country. Um, this is something, the, the diversity and the ethics piece, whenever we talk to industry, those are the top two things they're, they're really interested in when they talk to us. So uh, really keen to work with both the British Computer Society and IOC on how we uh, do both the apprenticeships piece and also how we uh, look at how we address the concept of ethics as part of, uh, as part of higher education. Um, now I've talked so far a lot about national uh, 
uh, and our, our kind of perspective from a, a, a national piece. But what's really, really important is that there is uh, a need for a lot of local interventions. Some talk earlier and in the first session about the diversity of skills needs across regions, um, the importance of partnerships and the value of partnerships at that, that local level. Um, and you might be aware that while we have the national uh, industrial strategy, there is now there are now moves afoot to create some local industrial strategies, and some regions are, are slightly more advanced than others in doing that. Um, but uh, that's coming. We have the local enterprise partnerships, which again can produce provide some of that opportunity to create networks and partnerships on a local level. Um, and certainly from uh, my position in the office for AI, I see real value in those local partnerships in taking forward some of these uh, these challenges that we have in the space. So I guess my kind of plea that I would leave you with is is to think national, think about how what you're doing fits into the, uh, the country's industrial strategy uh, and how it can be supporting driving that forward, but also act local engage with your local industrial strategies, the development of those, many of them are running consultations, engage with your local enterprise partnerships uh, and create the partnerships that will help develop the skills that uh, colleagues on the panel have talked about for the future that we need to take the economy towards. Thank you. So you've heard from our speakers, um, we've covered a real breadth of area there. Um, I wonder if we have any questions that have occurred to you as you've been going along. Do we have any takers? Have we stunned you into silence? Here at the front. So, sorry, I didn't, I didn't hear that very well. The microphone is actually on. Uh, <laughs> so, you were asking about uh, the views on of employability for computer science from industry, basically, yeah? What are the skills, what are skills that Well, I've been talking to a lot of industry, and um, so some of, the, some of the things that they're saying to us are, um, first of all, that... Um, Skills gaps are being filled from um, other other courses, um, and one of the findings that came through from Shadbot really was that some employers actually preferred uh, to employ people from other courses rather than computer science. Now, that I, I must admit, I haven't been I haven't been hearing that. What I've been hearing is that there's just there aren't enough uh, computer science graduates uh, out there, and so um, they are looking much further afield. Um, but one of the one of the key things that they've been saying to us actually, particularly sort of big companies, is around um, 
the fact that it's the technical skills aren't the most important thing for them at all. Um, and, and a lot of that is to do with recruitment practices. Um, there's lots of people who can come up and say, I've got technical skills, I've done a university degree, I've, I've got these technical skills. But, but they, they are trying to select the very best and they do that through an interview process and various other selection processes. Um, and often computer science graduates aren't performing very well uh, in those kinds of uh, sort of forums. And so even though they may they are potentially wonderful uh, employees for these companies. The companies can't be sure um, that they, they, they are actually going to have those software employability, the people skills, um, those abilities to actually be part of the team, uh, to actually fit in. Um, and, that, and that's something I've been hearing quite a lot about, that they want people who are going to fit in, who are going to be part of their company, who are going to be comfortable there. Uh, because one of the big issues for, for employers is the fact that they have to invest a huge amount of money to train people when they first employ them, particularly graduates. Um, and then graduates will tend to leave after two or three years. Um, so th they are really trying to identify those people that, that are going to become part of the company and are going to stick around for a long time. Um, and, and interesting, there is interesting data around uh, degree apprenticeships. It seems that with any problem we come across in digital skills, degree, degree apprenticeship seems to be the answer. Um, that this, um, People who are going into companies, I mean, they're, they're, degree apprenticeship is fairly new, so there isn't an enormous amount of data, but there is evidence to suggest they're sticking around a lot longer. Um, but the actual process, uh, the apprenticeship process, uh, getting people into jobs uh, is, is actually somehow making them uh, more of a corporate being, I suppose, and, and actually staying within those companies. Um, but that doesn't help very much with small businesses. So small businesses, um, they, they are uh, much more interested, obviously, in getting fully formed people. They don't have the time and the resource um, to invest in them in the way that big companies do. Uh, but conversely, they can't afford them um, because small businesses tend to not be able to pay, particularly the, the going rate that the bigger companies can. Uh, so they're grappling with that problem at the moment uh, and, and certainly um, there are lots of organisations um, who are supporting them in that. We've been doing quite a lot of work with tech partnership uh, around their degrees and the employer engagement they do. Um, and, and I've also been talking to a lot of uh, sort of careers organisations at universities and there's some really, really fantastic work going on out there uh, to, to help address these, these employment gaps um, and the, the sorts of um, ways that un increasingly universities are embedding careers education into courses uh, and, and really, um, I hate to use the word forcing, but perhaps uh, strongly encouraging their students uh, to actually engage with this all the way through university in first and second year, not, not just leaving it right to the end of the course, um, and, and developing both the, the employability skills, but also the careers education skills, the, the abilities to actually get those top jobs when they leave. So thank Lovely. you. I mean, so this, the SMEs, are, it is more challenging. We yeah. found that in the engagement, a number of different different levels of problems and the training yeah. issue that they face is quite com it is. complex. But it's interesting to say, you know, getting the students to engage with that career pathway all the way through yeah. their journey to understand what that career means but in itself, it's quite diverse. So that's very yes. interesting. Yeah, it is. And, and to open the minds of the students, really, to um, uh, to, to sort of look at look at smaller businesses and perhaps less traditional business businesses they 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 weren't aware of, and actually consider them for jobs because obviously they can have fantastic careers. Um, not everybody can work at Apple. Um, so, uh, so th there is a lot of work to do that because you, you have this, uh, this sort of conflict between lots of students who want to stay local, and we know it's a particular issue for, for computer science students, uh, but at the same time they want to work for big tech companies. Well, if you live in Rochdale, then um, you know, they, they, you're not going to be able to work for Apple. You need to, you need to be looking at those other businesses um, and, and considering sort of wider opportunities. Um, and it's sometimes very difficult 
sort of difficult to engage with them, and I know some universities struggle to, to engage with local businesses, but it can be done. But one of the things that has really come through, I think, is that um, even though uni um, universities find it hard to engage with SMEs, and it's a, it's a labour-intensive and difficult job to do, um, the more difficult bit is actually getting the students to engage with the placement opportunities that are there. Um, a number of universities have said to me that they have placement opportunities unfilled. Uh, every year they have placement opportunities unfilled. Um, that they've, you know, sweaty blood to actually, <laughs> to actually get. Uh, and they're, they're, they, they aren't able to match them to students. Um, so I think the, the, the work that they're doing to actually engage students and realise the importance uh, of employability is very important. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, there's a question on the benches there and then I'll come to this lady here. Thank you. Um, Neil Milliken, I, I work with the Diversity Board. I'm very interested to hear your comments about remote students, not them being able to work for tech companies. I work for a large tech company and we do a lot of remote work. So mm. actually, there shouldn't be that impediment. We shouldn't be thinking about how we used to work as a, yeah. as a barrier to how we are going to yeah, work in the future. Absolutely. And I also want to contest the idea that um, the interview processes and team fit should be a reason for not employing people that don't necessarily have the, the immediate soft skills because actually, again, we want to challenge the comfort levels that, that people have because actually diversity does create tension and when we select for homogeneity, we, we actually mm -hmm. create weaker teams, weaker results, worse products, worse results, everything else. So we need to find different ways other than the interview process yeah. to evaluate how, how we employ people. Yeah. So, so I think it's up to us to actually put pressure on our partners in business yeah. to actually look at how they're qualifying their candidates so that we can get the people with the right skills yeah. into the jobs rather than the people that turn up looking good at interview. I, I mean, I, I would agree with that. I mean, the remote working point is really, really interesting, actually, because it's not only uh, about when we, when we talk about preparing students for the world of work, uh, are we actually just preparing them for a traditional office-based worker rather than increasingly the, the, the way that work will, will be in the future, which will be much more remote, much more uh, sort of flexible and moving around. But also that, that raises all sorts of opportunities for um, uh, alternatives to the traditional sandwich course as well, because uh, if, if students will be tending to be work more remotely when they leave, why can't they also do remote placements, which can help uh, alleviate a lot of the issues that students have with actually yeah. engaging with placements? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely, and I think that whilst you do need some social contact, yeah. that, that remote working is, is viable. We've got 6,000 people working yeah. remotely in the UK. Yeah, absolutely. And, and on, on the, um, the recruitment, it's, it's difficult. I think companies have struggled for hundreds of years, really, in terms of identifying the best way to recruit people, and they've come up with all sorts of different methods of doing it. I remember uh, back when I was younger, graphology was very big, wasn't it? Everyone analysing handwriting and things. It turned out to be complete nonsense. Um, and, and they... So they're always looking for this, this way of actually getting to the real person and include them. And I think, again, it's the apprenticeship model is one that works really well there. Uh, and that's why they're so popular with so many companies, because then um, you're taking people in um, and you're really finding out what they're like and seeing whether they're a good fit for your company. And you, you have a really good idea at the end then whether they are. Can I suggest people go and have a look at what High Speed 2 are doing? Because they're, they're actually... So the, not, not in terms of failing to build a railway, but in terms of employment. 
um, because they've started not interviewing people but actually testing people on the skills that they need to do the specific role that they're going to employ them on. Okay. And in doing that, they've actually now uh, changed their entire balance of the people that are recruiting and 50% of the people that are recruiting now report as self-identifying as having a disability. So they are able to recruit much, much more inclusively by changing the traditional interview process. Mm. I think we need to see a lot more of what industry are doing and what HE are doing. There's good practice in both sectors. And I think the vehicle of the Institute of Coding allows us to try and identify some of that good practice and hop the fence. And uh, so I mean, it's, it's good to hear. The lady in the red at the front here. Actually, we've got, so you were talking about SMEs being an issue, getting students into SMEs. At Cardiff University, we've got the reverse problem. So we've got very, very good engagement with SMEs. Okay. I mean, we've got a very good SME culture in Cardiff anyway. But the reason we've got such good um, engagement is because companies and students meet face-to-face. -face. Mm -hmm. So we're the facilitators for that, and we run a series of networking events throughout the year. But our students are reluctant to apply for the big companies because of their assessment, their recruitment process. Uh -huh. yeah. So it completely eliminates mm. um, a lot of our students who are ASD. Mm. So they consider themselves to be on the spectrum and they can't cope in those environments, yeah. but they're very good employees. Yeah. I wonder um, whether, Tim, you'd have any thoughts on that. Do you have any thoughts on neurodiversity or on... I, I have a lot of thoughts on the importance of it. Uh, I, um, I sense I would probably be speaking to a, a, um, a converted audience. Um, how to do it, I think, is the, is the big challenge. And I think taking some of these examples, like the, the HS21, like the, the, the examples you're talking about, and uh, using them as case studies, showing that it is possible, I, I, think, I think part of the challenge, I guess, um, is that you know, people businesses look at the problem, they perhaps know that even that there's a problem, but they don't have those shining lights of examples of how to actually go about solving it. Taking the example of the handwriting test, you know, pe people will look at all sorts of different ways of doing it, but actually unless we can we can put examples like HS2 or others, if, if we think they're the right ones up on a pedestal and say, here's some evidence that this particular technique actually works. Um, but, but, you know, on the importance, on the question of what, how important it is from an AI perspective, deeply, deeply important. Um, and, you know, I always say from an AI perspective, and, and I'm sure wider in tech as well, it, this isn't just about um, doing diversity because it's the right thing to do. There's also the angle that you get better products, you get products that work for everybody in society if you have a diverse workforce involved in those products. And I think that, you know, there's a, there's a doubly strong argument why we need to do it. Thank you. Could I ask a question if there aren't any immediate ones? Um, I wondered whether Brooke or Andy had anything to say on... Um, we've talked a bit about the skills gap and about the need for uh, perhaps to bring in people who are existing workers who perhaps didn't go to HE the first time round or might be retraining. I wonder if either of you had any comments on lifelong learning or different formats or how we might approach this issue. Shall I start? Sure. Um, well, just approaching it would be good. Um, our <laughs> lifelong learning is, is in a bit of a crisis. Mm -hmm. um, you, you know, if you look at the, 
the kind of uh, the, the way our demographics play out, mo most of the kind of 2030 workforce is, is beyond university age. Uh, certainly most of it is beyond uh, 18. Um, uh, talked a lot about place. I, th I think, it, by the way, it's still tremendously underdone in policy. It's underdone in the industrial strategy. Um, but it's, but it's, it's really underdone in skills and, uh, uh, and HE. Um, but it, the, the lifelong learning, adult learning thing is a, is a, is a real, real problem for us. 60% uh, fall in part-time students since 2010 in HE. Uh, similar falls in FE. So both our, both our kind of FE and HE systems have become much more homogenised yeah. around the young full-time uh, um, student. And in the face of kind of, you, you know, the, the uh, uh, extent of change in the workplace... Uh, that that's a real problem. Um, I think I think it's a it's a problem going into the spending review, which is which has come up a couple of times. Um, what, what, one one thing I'll uh, uh, Philip Hammond is going to stand up and deliver the spring statement in about ten minutes. I bet you he doesn't mention industrial strategy because <laughs> Treasury hate the term industrial strategy. Uh, but uh, uh, that's just just something to watch out for. But uh, um, at the moment, D DFE will be going into that uh, spending review asking for more money for schools, more money for FE, and more money for HE in the form of kind of extra teaching grant for, uh, that, that flows out of AUGA after a fee cut. Um, it, it might ask for more money for adult education, but even if it does, it's going to fall quite a long way down that list of priorities. So uh, there's no kind of obvious sense that, that we're going to solve this problem anytime soon, but we absolutely need to. Somebody mentioned something <clears throat> about conversion courses. And I, uh, I wondered whether, Brooke, I know we've done a pilot conversion course. Is there anything you could tell people about what we learned from that? They're very popular with mature learners. <laughs> <laughs> um, the conversion course pilot that we run, which we will be able to publish the evaluation for very shortly, uh, we extended the evaluation because we found that actually the programs took a lot longer to develop. Um, they also took a lot longer and a lot more energy was needed to recruit. Um, and a lot of that was because of the utility to which they were being put. So these courses are in, inherently designed to help somebody who's studied a different subject, a non-engineering subject, and then it was expanded to data science and computer science as well, um, and, and to shift directions really in order to gain uh, employment in one of those sectors. Um, it was attractive to young students, but it was overwhelmingly attractive to those who are already in work looking to shift gears. Um, and you will find that through the evaluation. So um, Birkbeck actually is one of the institutions that we funded through this, and their uh, results of the conversion course is absolutely stellar. So this has been a big win for them, whereas other institutions put in just as much effort but just didn't see the same sorts of outcomes and partly we wonder and are exploring you know what is the relationship between the targeted audiences um, I, I would say I agree with everything that Andy said about this broadly and I think one thing that Nicola and I and, and those who are working to her in this new OFS machine have come to see is that so much of our effort and attention on widening access and improving participation is in some way or another implicitly and explicitly defined by young graduates. Um, and we see that in the Fire It Up campaign. We had a discussion with DFE a few moons ago to say, all the images that you've shown us, brilliant campaign, so much effort put into this campaign, but you know, of the first few sequences of photos that we saw, we were like young, 
young, young, young. Although interestingly, the theme song is from Buster Rhymes and goes right back to my, to my childhood. So I'm thinking, actually, your demographic choice for music might be going a little bit older. But the images are all really young, and I think that in and itself, you know, it's, it's a small point, but it's a big point. And it goes back to a lot of what others have been talking about around role models and around seeing whether it's for you. And we do know, given everything that we've said here already, how important it is that we arm people with the ability to upskill. So those who are in the driving lane of the job they like, but there's new stuff coming at them and they need to learn and they need to learn more quickly and they need to learn through not, uh, do I need to go take a degree, but CPD and, and short bite, you know, taster courses, bite-sized stuff, it, all the sorts of stuff that actually are, are starting to be generated through IOC, um, but other initiatives as well. So I, I think a lot of our work going forward is to try to widen the discussion to mature learners and, and shine a light on what extra work needs to be done around that. Um, in order to, to get more out of it. We could be seen to be a room of potential mature learners. <coughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, I just want to ask you to thank our expert panel today. Um, if you'd join me in just thanking them for their time and their words. <laughs> <laughs>